Hi, this is Gordon Davis, and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Yes, we are still here, buoyed by Collins John's inspirational speech on our last show as the boys prepare to go into battle with Arsenal at the Emirates on Sunday lunchtime. The odds are, of course, heavily stacked against us in our bid for survival, but if we don't believe in ourselves, then who else is going to? Jay Mack and Baldo are with me to look forward to this London derby. Plus, Baldo and I got our heads together a little while ago to have an in-focus chat about Simon Davis, who scored his first Fulham goal at the Emirates many years ago. So let's go. Fulham. Well, lads, we have six matches to go. We're six points behind Newcastle, who are playing at home to West Ham a day before we play. It's very conceivable that we go into the Arsenal game on Sunday, nine points behind Newcastle, with them having a game in hand over us too. But on the other hand, West Ham are having an incredible season and are in Champions League contention. I'm trying my best not to think about it, but J-Mac, how can we just enjoy the last few weeks of the season? I mean, we've had so many do-or-die games now. Uh, it now just feels like just die. Uh, but no, maybe it's it's more it's more like this. Let's die well. I think. Uh, I mean, we've bottled it, according to everyone else, including Newcastle fans who don't understand how we've managed to fuck this up. I think that's fair, but it's just unacceptable to have this season again. Um, in regards to how we can have fun, I mean, two seasons ago we we had fans in to make some fun of it with our relegation beach party at Bournemouth. So it won't be as fun as that, I'm afraid. But. Uh, Parker just needs to tell them to play with more liberty, you know, for, for the badge and with some fucking passion. Don't, don't go in there thinking, let's not lose for once. Wolves was, there was no urgency to win whatsoever. It, when we were relegated last time, mathematically, we started playing with the shackles off after Watford. And we were actually playing quite well against Watford in the first few half minutes or whatever before we actually lost 4-0, whatever it was. But j- just do that now. Get forward, overlap our fullbacks. I don't know, counter-attack or c- counter-press with four men running into the box for fuck's sake. Update our game. We've constantly treated games this season as a boxing match, waiting for one or two killer blows without the right gloves on and being knocked out with goals like Triore's in the last game. It's time to just keep asking questions and keep going and get people in, our, in, in their box, basically. That's what I can think of. Try and have fun with it. <laughs> Well, not quite as inspirational as Colin John, but I give you, I give you your best effort. Honestly, I'll I just trying, think I'll keep trying. <laughs> I just, I just think to enjoy it, just lower expectations. That's that's really been it. That's been my philosophy all season. Is you know, I've said as many times. I expect us to go down, so I'm not setting myself up to be disappointed. Yes, we've had our chances to get out of it and everything, but at the end of the day. I said, you know, twentieth. We were probably expected to finish twentieth. If we finish nineteenth, that would be achieve you know over um exceeding expectations in my mind so just just take just take the season as it is don't worry about it things things will get things will get better the country's opening up j max said about the bournemouth beach party we can't have that but i'm pretty we could have a socially distanced bournemouth beach party if everyone just saw flocks there at you know at any at any given time safely of course um but yeah just i mean in terms of on the pitch just don't just don't expect anything hopefully when the when the inevitable does happen, which it will do, hopefully that will be the you know, the moment where we start looking ahead to next season. And, you know, that's when we start to bring the likes of Carvalho and Jasper and maybe Stansfield into the team. I'm not saying put them all as a front three, but maybe that's the time where, you know, we get that youthful injection into the side and, you know, give us something, give us something to look forward to. So I think that's, that's really it. That's my philosophy from now to the end of the year. 
Uh, I don't really know what to say to that. Um, uh, lower expectations is is I kind of I kind of agree with you. That's fair enough. I don't I don't necessarily think that the expectations were that high at the start of the season, but now we kind of put ourselves in contention for a number of weeks. Expectations naturally do go up, don't they? So it's almost it's almost a, it feels worse when you've put yourself in contention and then just drop straight back out to where you were when you began again. It's it's been very very frustrating. But like like we were saying on on the show the other day, um, the pressure's off us now to a certain extent. We like like I've just said, we could go into that game on Sunday nine points behind Newcastle with Newcastle having a game in hand, which is a way at Liverpool. So, you know, that's um, Liverpool just won their first home game of, of the calendar year um, last weekend against Aston Villa. So with a bit of luck, they'll carry on some form at home and see off Newcastle. But nine points with um, with our running is is looking very, very unlikely, isn't it? But with a little bit of luck, West Ham will pull something out of the bag at St. James's Park on Saturday. And then if we do get a result against Arsenal, it's just three points. So... Football's a game of margins, very fine margins, isn't it? So we will see how the weekend pans out. Um, Arsenal's form at home this season, whilst far superior to ours, is still pretty poor. Of their 15 games, they've won six, drawn three and lost six. Their last five home games have seen two wins, two defeats and one draw. They do, however, come off the back of a straightforward 3-0 victory at Sheffield United last week. If we were in full great escape mode... I think we could probably get some points here. Collins John was certain we'll win the game, um, as he said on the show on on um, on Monday morning. But with our dismal run of four defeats on the trot since that win at Anfield, J-Mac, is there any hope of a result here? Look, I mean, we have the capability to beat Everton and Leicester and Liverpool. I mean, of course, there's always a chance. That's just, you know, uh, you look at... I'm just thinking about it properly. I think there is a chance just because at the moment you've got Tierney who's injured. And um, I asked a mate of mine who's an Arsenal fan, what if we were going to beat you, uh, you know, in a blue mood, just like, how, how would we, how would we do that? And he said, just to target our wings. And there's a chance that Xhaka will be playing at left back. And he's not a natural fullback at the moment because of Tierney's being injured. And, um, you know, and he'll make that our left is more defensively minded and the right would be more overlapping. So just basically attack the wings and pressure their midfield and defence when transitioning. Uh, there have been a few mistakes made by them, especially by their goalkeeper and Jacker in the past. I mean, if we can and maybe cause goals like Mitrovic did against uh, Villa. But I feel, to be honest, for this game, I'd like just to see us go for a 4-4-2. I mean, we, we played a 4-4-2 against Everton and we played a 4-4-2 against Liverpool. And I'd say Everton and Liverpool were our best results this season. And we haven't returned to it since. And um, I, I'd like to see that again, to be honest. And I, I feel like we're looking at Arsenal aerial duels. They're, aerial duels they're very weak at, at the moment. Uh, but from open play not actually from set pieces. So we just need to keep on crossing, attack their wings, cross it in and, and watch their runners because they love creating chances and scoring from them. Um, you know, I I feel like there is a chance, but you also look at the fact that Aubameyang hasn't scored for a while and I feel like we'll we'll probably sort that out for him <laughs> as we usually do for players that are having a bit of a drought, aka Adam Traore. And yeah, and Lacazette loves to score against us. Oh, look, there's always a chance, but I just feel like... I think we need to go back to four four two if we want to see something at least a bit more interesting. Counter press them like we did with Everton, something like that. 
And we'll be up against a, uh, a former player of ours. We had him on loan two years ago, Callum Chambers, who's recovered from a, a knee injury. And he's keeping Bellerin out the side. He's playing right back for Arsenal um, now. And I think he only ever played right back for Fulham once, which was for a half away at Cardiff. And he was absolutely diabolical. But by all mm. accounts, now he's he's playing right back for Arsenal and playing really, really well. Yeah, it's, fu- it's funny that I've been... T- <laughs> We never played him at right back, did we? We might have done one game. We played him everywhere, but it was actually, you know, central defensive midfield where we where he sort of shined for us as player of the season. I, I'm just so shocked he's still there, to be honest. I think, like, as a right back, he... I mean, I don't know if he's doing very well there. Probably not. I, I he feel is. Like he, he is. He's in the team. He's in the team. He's, keep, he's keeping Bellerin out. He's, he's there on merit. He's playing really well, apparently. Oh, that's just, it's just weird. I don't know. I don't know what to yeah. make of that, to be honest. But yeah, it's just funny. I mean, hopefully, you just know he's going to score against us now, don't you? But I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what Bordeaux thinks about it, but I feel like there's a chance. There's a chance to win. Of course, there is. But just needs to. I don't know. I don't know. I think there is. I think there is a chance, but it's predominantly going to come from Arsenal, and you know, with there because they've got the Europa League camp. They've got their Europa League game you know, tomorrow, as we're recording it tonight yesterday, depending on how, when you're listening to this. Um, so I think if they were to get through against Slavia Prague, they're, they're in, you know, sort of focus on Europa League mode. So, you know, even though they've still got a couple of weeks until the semi-final, with what happened to Kieran Tierney, they will want to be resting as many players as they can. So you'd imagine they want to rest, rest the big-time players. So in that sense, you know, if they are a weakened team, and we put out, you know, our theoretical strongest team. I think there is a chance for us to get something, but even then, you know, that's probably there's a best chance scenario. I, I would be stunned if we still managed to get a win. We might be able to get a point, but in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't that doesn't really make that much of a difference. So I think a hard, I think a win is going to be very hard for us to get in either circumstance. And we never we never win at the Emirates anyway. Or, or Highbury. We we have our record away at Arsenal has always been bad. Is that right? I mean, yeah, but we never want to go to St Park and Anfield either. Well, yeah. So, so there again, there's more of a chance because of no crowds being in there, I guess. But I I don't know. Arsenal always seem to dick us over. We won at Anfield a few years ago. Who was that guy? Was it Skirt who got an own goal? Skirtle or Aga, one of the two. It was a quiz question. I've forgotten it already. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I think I asked the question as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, J-Matt, we had a great chat on the Post Wolves pod the other day about Scott Parker's job. I know you changed your mind about Scott Parker almost on an hourly basis. So where are you at the moment with it? I mean, how long have you got? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, look, I mean, I was Parker out. But then I heard Mr. John's infectious positivity and I swayed. I, I keep changing, I suppose, because it's a complicated blame game, isn't it? Look, we can we can look at Tony Khan, the Marlon, the Todibo fiasco, Anderson only happening because it was a late deal. No striker, no Premier League experience, wingers, no playmaker, a wasted domestic loan and Ruben Loftus-Cheek because he's shite. Um, there's a blame game and I'm aware of it against Tony Khan. But the fact is, in my opinion, the football under Scott Parker has been inconsistent boring and painful to watch now for two years he's a lovely lovely guy and I like him as a player and as a man and as a motivator but as a tactician I mean we've lost we've dropped 16 points now from winning positions this season so that changing the psychology of Fulham every goal conceded is a fight for your life sort of thing has failed the substitutions 80% of the time are late and incorrect his handling of Mitrovic I don't fully hate because I think Mitro has had his problems and not been good enough this season regardless of not starting enough but 
We've scored 10 goals in the last 25 games. There is no method of attacking cohesion, no pattern of play. We don't run with the ball enough or break with more than two players or use our pace like West Brom are now doing, who are completely on our asses. Uh, No overlaps, no width, no urgency. I'm sorry, I just don't... I believe a more experienced manager could have got this squad to a 15th or 16th position. That's just how I feel right now. And if we do get relegated... I don't have faith we'll go back up with him automatically because we rode our luck last season protecting 1-0 leads with five at the back and nearly could have lost a fair few games. It never looked consistent or felt secure. So I'm rambling now, but, but, but there is an argument. Maybe Parker has just been unlucky for two years by not having the right attackers. I mean, Knockhart was a dud. Cavalera has been poor since he signed permanently. Bobby Reed has been played in too many positions and been yada yada. Uh, kudos for him for this season, though. AK-47 never seems to be, have been good enough. This season, Cheek's not been good enough. Cabano's never really been that great. There is an argument to make that our recruitment for attackers over the last three to four years has been only decent with Ryan Babel and Mitrovic. I mean, some stats could argue it's conversion and not chances. And, um, you know, I'm sure with better players, we'd be higher up the table. But Parker's tactics haven't aided us to kill an opponent with goals. Also, I just want to quickly say, sorry, I really am monologuing, but Scott Parker hasn't made any players better, in my opinion, which is the trait of a good manager like Slavica, Bielsa, Farka, Nuno even. I mean, they can turn 11 screws into a pocket watch. We haven't seen that yet because we have a manager who's still learning. He's not the finished article, which everyone keeps saying, and I get it. Why are we accepting that? We want we we want a finished article as a manager for our club. I'm sorry, it's it's been a marriage of novices between Tony Khan and Parker, and I'm a bit sick of it. I mean, he turned the ship around around Villa and Brentford. It's a nonsense. He turned the ship around. He parked the bus and got two thousand draws, and we're still shit. I mean, five wins in thirty two games isn't a good performance from any coaching staff. That's just a reality, not negativity. He might improve. We might get attackers right, and I just feel like I just don't feel like Fulham is. I don't think Parker is Fulham's Farker, Eddie Howard, Dyche anymore for the future seasons. I'm sorry, I just don't. That that being said, if we beat Arsenal, I'm Parker in. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you are. (laughs) I think I I don't want to keep I don't want to keep name dropping Collins John, but I'm just going to hear because of the argument that he made the other day, which I think is worth worth us talking about as well, and that is. In the Great Escape season under Roy Hodgson, we had a, a squad that was full of Premier League experience with the likes of Danny Murphy, Brian McBride, Jimmy Bullard, um, Aaron Hughes. You know, we, we had there was a lot of Premier League experience, a lot of games under, under their belts collectively in the Premier League. But you look at the current squad and... This is what he was saying the other day. There isn't, There aren't many players who have played in the Premier League before um, certainly not successfully, because most of the most of them, their only Premier League experience was with us last time. So the likes of Angisa, um, Mitrovic even hadn't played that much for Newcastle beforehand. Then he came to, up with us and scored a few goals with us. But there's nobody with established Premier League careers behind them that that are in this squad at the moment, and that's that's the worrying thing for me. Um, and that's why you can't just lay the play, the blame fully at Scott Parker's door. You have, you have to look at the recruitment. And the recruitment yeah. model is that we, we won't sign players over a certain age, but that really restricts us. Um, and it's the decisions are being made by businessmen rather than football men because they're thinking, oh, well, what about the sell-on value of these players? But who cares about the sell-on value? 
you know, why can't we keep hold of these players? If, you know, a 30-year-old, I don't know, who was Gary Cahill we were apparently in for a couple of years ago and he didn't he didn't want to come in the end from Chelsea. And now he's, he's playing regularly for, for Crystal Palace and has done ever since. That's the sort of player with a bit of experience and not necessarily with age on his side that that we, we could have done with infusing in certain areas in this team and we just don't do it. So I think it's fine to, to kind of blame Scott Parker to a certain extent, but you're only as good as the players you've been given and I still think the recruitment's not good enough. I think that's totally fair and I think with the regards to the 28, you know, only 28 or below age thing, it doesn't make much sense to me because we haven't actually made a profit of any player um, under 20 other than Sessegnon and we didn't even purchase him. He was through the academy. So it, there is something wrong there and something a bit amiss. But um, no, I know, look, Parker's not a bad guy. I've always wanted him to do well. I'm just I'm just saying what I think will happen, what I sort of want to happen that's most realistic because let's face it, the recruitment's not changing because Tony Khan's not going to go anywhere as much as I'd like him to. I don't know what Bordeaux thinks or if we want to move on, but that's just that's just my slice of it. I'm sure Baldo's got something to say. It would be unusual if he doesn't. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with a lot of what J-Max said. I will probably try to do it in you know in less time than he did. But yeah, I do think there's 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 blame to be placed on both sides. I think as you know, as J-Max said, Parker hasn't improved any of our players, which which is a and at the same time, the players that he has been have haven't exactly been the greatest. Who who do you put the blame on? That it, it is it is blame on both sides. There. I don't want to get into too you know long-term project and short-term project, but just on the general Parker thing, I want him to stay because I've I know I've said I would never call for him to go because of the task he was handed in the summer with the short turnaround time and the recruitment above him and all that sort of stuff. So he gets this season, not as a free pass, but he gets this season because of the circumstances he was dealt. That being said, if we do start off next season. Again, me under the assumption that we're, that we're going to go down. If we do start off next season in, you know, and we get to around October time and we're 10th in the league, even though he does have that long term security because of the new contract he signed last summer, I wouldn't be surprised, nor would I totally blame the Khans if they were to get rid of him and say, right, we need a new manager, whoever that may be, whether that be, um, you know, a an instant promotion manager, Sam Allardyce, say, for instance, or if it's a more long-term one for, you know, just pick a name out of a hat, ex-player, stuff, let's say Vincente Montella, why not? I I wouldn't blame them, nor would I be surprised if they did go down that route. Fucking hell, you nearly did it as long as me. All I'm saying is I'm glad. I'm, all I'm saying is I'm looking forward to the day you win an Oscar and your acceptance speech goes on for two days. That's what I'm looking forward to, Jake. <laughs> May try a week. It'd be brilliant. I think. Um, but yeah, I, I think. I think. I think Scott Parker will be with us until or um, late autumn. Um, I don't. I think I would make the change at the start of next season if we're relegated. But yeah, I think he's got until then. Basically, I agree with what Boulder says there. All right, let's move on then. Let's go across to a chat that Baldo and I had a little while ago about Simon Davis. Is Simon Davis in focus? Fulham. Right, yes, it's time for another in our series of in focus chats. This week it is Simon Davies. I've got Baldo with me. You all right, Baldo? Yep, absolutely. A great chance to talk about one of my all-time favourite players. 
Well, Welsh international midfielder Simon Davies signed for Fulham in the January transfer window of 2007 from Everton for an undisclosed fee and went on to have a great career with the club during his six-year stay, the achievements of which we'll discuss shortly. But to begin with, as a Welshman, Baldo, how did you feel when he signed? I'll be a bit honest. I was a bit meh about, about the signing because this was the... It was the summer after we, no, the uh, January after we'd lost Steve Malbronk to Spurs, and the same month that we'd lost Lewis Belmorte to West Ham, and those players, you know, those were exciting players, you know, Belmorte running down the wing uh, with speed. Malbronk always had that little touch of skill to him. Whereas Simon Davis, as good a winger he was, he was he was he was a functional winger. He wasn't an exciting player like Steve Malbronk and Belmorte were. Obviously, I was happy to have him because I'd seen what he'd done with Wales, and I thought, oh. He can add something to the team. You know, we've lost Simon Davison. Uh, uh, we've lost Steve Malbronk and Lewis Belmorte. He can add something. But I wasn't exactly over... I wasn't thrilled to, to see him sign. You're In a way, you're right, because he's not the sort of player like Bauer and, and Steed who you pay your money to watch because they're the flair players of the side, aren't they? Or they were. But Simon Davis, I, I feel like he was more technically gifted than he got the credit for. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And, you know, obviously his goals, you know, the goals that he did score would kind of reflect that. And the moments of, you know, I don't want to say moments of magic, but just some of the things he did, I don't think there were any other players that could have produced, you know, what he did. He was very, as I say, he was a very effective winger. But as you say, he's not the sort of player that, you know, you're going to pay, you're, you're not paying to watch Simon Davis. There were other players in that team that would excite you a little bit more than he would. Well, he cited the type of football Chris Coleman played as being an influence on him joining the club. But of course, Coleman was only to last in the Fulham hot seat for another few months before being booted out. But one thing you can say about Simon Davis was how consistent his performances were, despite a lot of upheaval in the first year or so, as Laurie Sanchez came in for a few months before being replaced by Roy Hodgson in December 2007. He was 27 when he joined, so he probably got the best years of his career. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair because when you take a look at the career that he'd had, you know, at Peterborough and Tottenham Hotspur, again, it was the same sort of thing. He just sort of trundled along. There weren't any, like, I don't, like if you were to ask a Spurs fan to name a memorable Simon Davis moment, I don't think there really is one. Uh, I'm not too sure. I'm not 100% sure about Peterborough, but I get the sense it's just the same there. So when we came to Fulham, he was, it wasn't necessarily on a grander stage. Obviously, we had the Europa League run afterwards, but it was, it, it gave him a chance to be a big, you know, a, a bigger fish, as it were. He stood out a little bit more in this team. So, yeah, I'd say, given given where he was, we got him at, at the perfect time. And you're right. He was involved in a lot of huge Fulham matches. Let's let's have a look at those. So let's start with the 1-0 win over Liverpool in May 2007. Clint Dempsey scored the winner, which kept us in the Premier League. Davis played the full 90 minutes that afternoon. What were your memories of that day? I think my only real memory of that day was trying to work out going into the game how strong a lineup Liverpool were going to play because this was in the midst of one of their uh, Champions League final runs. This was the year that they lost it to AC Milan. But, you know, all the discussion beforehand was, oh, will the likes of Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher and all that lot, will they be rested? Um, and obviously that was the case. And even throughout the day, I don't really remember remember all that much because it wasn't the most exciting game. It wasn't as if we we you know we stole a one nil win from them, or it wasn't as if you know we absolutely dom dominated them and go away with it. It was just a run of the mill game, and then obviously Clint Dempsey comes up comes up with his moment, and it wasn't the result that kept us up, but given the way the table was at that point, it just 
it lifted a huge, huge weight off our shoulders, knowing that we only had, I think, like I think it was only the weekend after there was only one game left to go, um, which was away at Middlesbrough. So it just gave us a huge boost going into that final. Right, we can we can stay up because in the few weeks beforehand, it was really you know terrible, and there were a lot of nerves about all oh, this could be the year we go down. We were just running out of games, weren't we? And that was the one, you're right, because Liverpool did put out a weekend side. My memories of that day, first of all, are Michael Brown, who was our captain that um, after Boa Morte left for that half a season, put in a two-footed tackle on the edge of the penalty area, for which he should have been sent off in the first half, I think. Um, and he was very fortunate not to be, and that would have really screwed us. Then I remember Robbie Fowler missing an open goal uh, to give Liverpool the lead. I think that was in the first half. And then, of course, Clint's goal. And then I just remember uh, Neil Colin Warnock just whinging about the lineup that Liverpool put out because ultimately it meant that Sheffield United went down in our place. Yeah, Neil Warnock moaning. No, never. Don't believe you. I know. Can't imagine it, can you? It's difficult. Um, the 2007-2008 season was the one we remember as the great escape season, though. The first half of the campaign was utterly dire. Roy Hodgson came in and things eventually started to improve. It's fair to say that the first signs of improvement in terms of results was when we came from behind to defeat Aston Villa that February. And of course, Simon Davis got the equaliser that day. He did, yeah. And I think we talked about this in the Brian McBride um, review or, or the in-focus thing, that we just needed we needed that leader with Brian, with Brian McBride and we needed that moment against Aston Villa. Because again, it was the same sort of thing. I didn't. I don't remember us really having that many chances. You know, I don't remember. We were very, we were very much the underdogs, and very much Aston Villa were the better team that day. So we just needed that little moment to give us some little bit of hope. And had Simon Davis, you know, provided. I remember. I remember quite vividly. Jimmy Bullard put the ball into the put the ball into the box. I've, everyone, I'm assuming, in the ground was waiting for Brian McBride to head the ball in. But then there's Simon Davis nipping ahead to get the equaliser. Yeah, we talked about you know. He's effective. He's not that big of skill. That was a pretty neat bit of skill to be able to get just the right amount of, you know, just the right amount of flick on it to get past the goalkeeper at the time. Very, very good indeed. Yeah, because there wasn't that much pace on the ball because it bounced, didn't it? Before it got to him, it bounced in front of him, and he's just flicked it and looped it up and over into the into the bottom corner. It was a great finish. Yeah. Were there any other standout Simon Davis moments during that great escape season for you? Yeah, and it's a bit of a weird one. I can remember mainly because we had the fantastic kit on that day, that that light blue, that sky blue kit. But it was away at Sunderland, and in one of the more freak goals you'll ever you'll ever see. Um, it yeah, very reminiscent, very reminiscent of Joe Bryan at Wembley, except Joe Bryan definitely meant it. Whereas Simon Davis, if you asked him, I'm pretty sure there would be some controversy about it. But he puts the ball into the box, and I'm pretty sure it catches the wind. As you can see in the build-up, there's like bits of paper and everything flying around. And he just manages to catch the win at the perfect time and just flies past the goalkeeper from about 35 yards out on the left hand on the left hand side. It was it was definitely definitely a memorable goal. I'll put it that way. It was right in the postage stamp as well. I mean, if he meant it, it was it was absolutely outstanding. He didn't really have any right to to score from there if if he did mean it. But it kind of just keeper had no chance, did he? It bent right right away from him, right into that top corner. It was it was a great goal, whether he meant it or not. Um, I, I think for me it, that season, that that goal he scored against Reading at home was was superb. That kind of came to him, and he's he's hit it with the outside of his boot and bent it around all the that crowd of players, bent bent it around all of them, put it in the bottom corner, and. I, I think we went on to win. Was that three one that day? That was that was three one, yeah. And I think he laid on the assist for David Healy to get to get the third. Which, if you go and back and look at the 
league table and how goal difference affected things. You know, yeah. it may have looked like a dead rubber goal at the time, but that goal, similar to Eric Neverland um, at the latter end of the season, proved to be a very important goal. So very much, a, you know, probably arguably his best performance of the season just because of how important it was. Yeah, no, that's fair. Let's skip forward to the Europa League. And he was, of course, outstanding during that campaign and became a man for the big moment. Firstly, with the equaliser against Hamburg in the semi-final. Talk me through your memories of that evening. One of the finest ever at the Cottage for me. It was. And I think I went into the game as I had, sort of the way all the way through the tournament. And, you know, again, Shaq Dardanesque, oh, they're the holders. Oh, we'll put up a good fight, but we'll probably get knocked out. Then Juventus, oh, we're definitely out. Then Wolfsburg, German champions, everything. Oh, as long as you put up a good performance, we're okay. Then it was Hamburg. And if, if I'm being honest, it was pretty much the same thing. I didn't really have that much confidence in us getting something from the game. So I went in there quite relaxed. And even when Milad and Petric uh, uh, scored, uh, my my real my only real emotion was, okay, we've got this unbeaten record in Europe. You know, we haven't lost going back to the intertoto and the UEFA Cup days. Is you can at least get a draw. We've exceeded expectations. Guess that's all that's all I can really ask for. Um, but then obviously everything turned on his head with Simon Davis's goal, which I know it gets said cliche, but in this situation, it is definitely true. If that goal was scored by Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or whoever the big name player was at the time, Ronaldinho, say, then we would be talking about it for years, you know, globally as a football society. Whereas really, it's only really remembered by, you know, those hipsters who like to reminisce about this sort of stuff and Fulham fans. Because beyond the wider thing, it doesn't get the recognition that it deserves, but it turns out to be a major turning point for us. This is what I mean about him being technically outstanding, though. That goal was technically outstanding. There was nothing fluky about it. He's he's flicked it back over um, onto his chest, brought it down with one foot, and then volleyed it home. The only thing he could really do with it, but it was it was just an outstanding finish. And it was it wasn't in a nothing game. It was in such an important game with that game so delicately poisoned. It set us up to you know go on and win the game. It was, and I think what's the most remarkable thing about it was he was playing right back at the time because Roy Hodgson had uh, switched things up. I think John Pansil had come off to bring on an attacker. I can't remember who it was. So he put Simon Davis to right back. So what makes that goal even more special was, you know, he'd gone way out of position to do it. Like if it was Zoltan Gear, right, you, you know, in the position he was, it would kind of make sense. But the fact that Simon Davis has obviously got the footballing intelligence to say, Right, this is my opportunity. I'm going to go forward and try and get something. But just a you know, further testament to the guy. Yeah, absolutely. On to the final then. And Simon Davis holds the accolade of being the only Fulham player ever to score in a major European final. I think that record's safe for a few years now. Do you? How was the final for you? Yeah, safe for a few a few years, a few decades. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's safe for. But yeah, the final. I can't remember too much of it because I was one of those people that was absolutely drunk out of my mind come 11.30 on the Reaper Barn on that morning. So most of it I have sort of lost to a, to a swill of, you know, whatever alcohol was on was, was on sale at the time. But yeah, the final itself, the only thing I can really remember was the winner by a certain Uruguayan who shall not be named. But... That actually no, two things I remember was that goal and after we gone behind was the stand up if you was the stand up if you still believe. And that that rendition of it, which was my ringtone for about three years afterwards. It was fantastic. But just on the occasion and you know, you go back and look at the goal. Again, it just comes back to what a great, you know, skillful player he was, because 
if you look at the goal, there really wasn't that much for him to aim at. And the fact that he managed to get it in the perfect place at David De Gea's uh, near post in quite a small angle, if you go back and look at the goal again, he doesn't have much room to hit it. But the fact that he hits it in the perfect place, you know, again, just shows you on his, on his day and when he had his moment, he can produce a little bit of magic. It almost felt like that chance had gone as well. I think, um, I, I can't remember if Zamora had it in some space in the penalty area and then he ended up crossing it. And was it was it a, um, a an Atletico Madrid player who kind of flicked it on? And yeah, it just... flicked it on to Davis at the back post. Yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember what you mean, yeah. It was the, the I perfect remember, I can't remember. It, for, for, it might have been Gira for all, for all I know, someone in that time. No, I, I feel like it was a defender, but I haven't, I haven't yeah, yeah. watched that goal for a, for a long, long time. But I, I remember, remember going absolutely nuts, thinking, "Bloody hell, we we just we just never know when we beat." And I think Graham Taylor. Well, I came back and I watched the game the next day, um, and Graham Taylor was doing the co-commentary, and he said, "You know, most teams would be beaten after um, after going behind in a final like this, especially a club the size of Fulham." But this is Fulham. You know, they don't know when they're beaten this season, and we didn't. That that was it was just an incredible campaign. And it's a shame that, you know, it ended in the way that it did in the end. But, you know, that's life. Yeah. Anyway, um, which of these moments was your favourite Simon Davis moment then? Or do you have another one? Um, I'll answer answer this question in two parts, really. Of the two, I would say the goal in the final and purely because of what happened afterwards. And if anyone's seen it, there is a there is a picture of Simon Davis. You can Google it right now when you're doing it, not if you're driving. Um, But there's this picture of him with his arms sort of raised, just sort of giving it the come on, make some noise. We're still in this sort of thing. It's a brilliant thing. And I have said for years. If the time comes for Fulham to get another statue, you know, after Johnny Haynes, after George Cohen, you'd probably want Jimmy Hill in there as well. But at some point, Simon Davis will get a statue. And I think it should be of him in that pose right there, just because I think it's one of the more iconic moments in sort of in sort of Fulham's history, even though it came, even though it came from a loss. But just in terms of Simon Davis' favorite moments overall, and I've mentioned this in the profile of the no, in the you know in the about us section of the Fulham Focus website, and it's my favourite goal of his. It's against West Brom in two thousand and eleven. Um, he picks the ball up from about thirty five yards, takes a touch, takes it, and you fires it into the far top, into the far you no know, left hand corner as we're looking for looking at it. I was in the hammy end at that time, and I'm sat right behind the finish. And it's one of those similar to David Luiz's when he scored for Chelsea against us at the hammy end. It's one of those, you can see it flying in. And it just sort of made him all that more aesthetically pleasing. If you go back, the highlights for it are pretty hard to find. But if you can, go back and watch it. It is a pretty amazing goal. Just the fact that he managed to find the top corner from the position he's in. Keeper didn't have a chance at that day. Fair enough. Well, I'm just uh, just going back to what you said then about the statue. I think if you're expecting a statue of Simon Davis, you're going to be gutted. <laughs> I, I hold, I hold, I hold our hope. We will get. I mean, if it's one of these, you know, if we have to get, if we have to have ten, if it's in ten statues time, I don't mind. But I do, I, I still maintain. I've maintained for years we should have along Putney Bridge. There are usual, there are usual gaps. I think where the signposts are. I think we should have like we should have a team of statues all the way along Putney Bridge. I've campaigned for that for years, and I'll probably keep campaigning until the day I die. I won't get it, but I'll still I'll still hold out hope that someone will see sense and we get it. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure uh, not sure the club owns Putney Bridge, mate. But good luck with that. Good luck. I'm with pretty that. sure I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Nottingham Forest don't own the city centre of Nottingham, but there's still a Brian Clough statue in there. If you pay someone the right amount of money, you could get it done. 
Good grief. Are we are we comparing Simon Davis to Brian Clough now? <laughs> yeah, why not? Might as well. <laughs> Bloody hell. Um, all right. I, I, I'm going to go back and say that I think my favourite moment, it's got to be that Hamburg semi-final. That's probably one of my, if not my most favourite match, certainly at Craven Cottage, aside from winning at Wembley when we were allowed in uh, against Aston Villa. That, that goal and that night is probably my favourite moment watching Fulham just because, bloody hell, it got Fulham to a, a European Cup final. But from the technical aspect, I think that goal against Reading was superb as well that I mentioned earlier. It's, are you saying that that's your favourite goal, the one against West Brom then? Yeah, that's, I think I've said that's my favourite. That is my favourite Fulham goal, you know, minus the obvious ones of Clint Dempsey against Juventus and Danny Murphy against yeah. Porto. If you take the obvious ones out, Simon Davis, yeah. that one is my favourite goal. Yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. Well, let's come on to rating his Fulham career then. Out of ten, what are you giving him? I think it's I think it's gotta be an eight because he had brilliant couple of years, you know, part of the great escape season. You know, even before that, you know, he was pretty effective in that first six months. He was a pretty decent player. In fact, scored his first goal against Arsenal. Again, go back to the moment of brilliant goal against Arsenal. That's why we're doing it today. The way he loops it over Jens Lehmann with his weaker foot at the time, brilliant goal. Then you take it through, you know, the great escape season. And then 08, 09, again, pretty effective player, scored some important goals then. Europa League run. The first three and a half seasons were fantastic. Then it all started to sort of go away. I think he, I think his, his role in the team sort of got taken away with the emergence of Moussa Dembele and Clint Dempsey and to an extent Brian Ruiz and Damien Duff as well. All those players sort of took the shine away from him and he didn't really have that that much of an effect on the team. So he'd sort of drifted into nothingness. And I remember in, you know, the last season he had, it was just a case, I think he used to turn up for the under 21s, I think it was back in the time, you know, just to get some games because obviously Martin Yol didn't fancy him and it sort of drifted away into nothingness. There wasn't this, you know, grand exit, you know, that went, so if he said in February, right, I'm going to leave at the end of my contract, then we could get some sort of final goodbye for him or something. But he just, went away into nothing. So that kind of takes the shine off a little bit. So that's why I go for an eight. I think eight's a, a pretty decent score, though. And I think if if he'd come along and been the player that he was just in a different era, then he might not have got, he might not have got such a high score because I'd give him an eight as well. But the fact that he was involved in that Europa run to such an extent that he, he scored those goals and he was part of, you know, something something amazing, you know, our highest ever um, Premier League finish and that whole era that he was a big part of, then that that goes that that lists his score up for me. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm going to go eight out of ten as well. And I, I really liked him, and I I wasn't as you said, I wasn't blown away when he when he signed, but he just he just surpassed my expectations. He was one of those players, and I really enjoyed his time at the club. Yeah, absolutely. And I was looking at it just before we recorded this, we signed him five million pounds. I think it was we signed him for, which comes across as an absolute bargain. In the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We definitely got value for money. All right, mate, thank you for that. Let's pass this back to the main show. Fulham. So I just want to clarify people for people who are listening. In the excitement of me talking about Simon Davis, one of my favourite Fulham players, I got a couple of the transfer fees mixed up. It turns out I did research it, but it just in the whole hype of everything. Basically, the £5 million was what we sold Lewis Boamorte for. 
And it turns out, I was doing some research, we actually bought Simon Davis for two million. So what I said, you know, we gone for a great deal. It turns out to have been an even greater deal. Just wanted to put that in just as a little bit of disclosure. My, my mistake, caught up in the hype. Great stuff. Well, everyone can sleep easy tonight knowing that. Thanks, Baldo. Right. <laughs> let's, um, let's you go never know who's going to be fact-checking these things. I just want to make. I just want to give myself a buffer. That's all it is. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on quickly. Um, <laughs> let's look at Stato's stats. So he sent across the stat file today. Um, so I'm going to have a look at Arsenal's season so far. Um, this season has gone on record as being one of Arsenal's worst seasons in the Premier League. Uh, they're still two points better off than at this stage last season, but they're 18 points worse off than from a couple of seasons ago. So that is quite quite the deficit. This season got off to a promising start, of course, after they swept us aside 3-0 on the opening day of the season and picked up four wins from their first seven games. However, they then went on a seven-game winless run throughout November and December, which is just not what you'd expect from a club like Arsenal. Um, at one point in the season, they were only six points ahead of us. Their form did pick up after Boxing Day, where they've now only lost four games from their last 17 since that point. So I don't think if anybody's expecting this to be anything of a pushover, then you probably need to think again. Overall, they've been averaging 1.5 points per game, scoring 1.4 goals and conceding 1.1. Baldo, over to you. Yeah, so I'm just taking a look at some of their stats, and some of these really did come come out as me as very striking. So only four of their goals this season have come from set pieces, which is the joint lowest um, in the league, along with us, Sheffield United and Leicester. And they have only scored one goal from a corner this season, and Stato has it down, I'll take his word for it, uh, Stato has it down that it was against us on the first game of the season. I've wiped that from my mem- game from my memory, so I'll just take his word. Um, this one shouldn't surprise people for those who are remembered the Arsenal days of Arsene Wenger, which was very tippy-tappy, very free-flowing football. They rank bottom for number of tackles put in per game as a team with an average of just 12.1 per game. And following on from that, they also commit the least number of fouls per game with 9.2. We, um, just for clarification, we are top of this list with 12.9, which is more than any team in the Premier. So you can't at least, so whilst they maybe talk about you know, showing a fighting spirit, we have we have some fight in our team because we're putting in a lot of tackles in. Um, they average 11.8 shots per game with 3.9 of those being on target. So you expect Ariola to be pretty busy. Uh, hopefully not too busy, though. Hopefully the defence can keep them at bay for some time. And 29 of their 43 goals this season have come from within the penalty area, 30 of which have been from open play, and only six have come from headers. So as J. Mac mentioned earlier, they're not much of an aerial threat. All right. And J. Mac, I think you're going to have a quick look at some of their key players for us. Yeah, mate. I'll be really speedy. Um, so you've got Alexander Lacazette, I hate this guy because he constantly scores for us and he always does it with a very annoying celebration. He's been their top scorer this season with 13 goals in 27 games. Five of those goals have come in the last six games. Great, so he's in form. And um, he's on course to have his best season in England since joining Arsenal in 2017. You've got Aubameyang. He's the most expensive player who they... It's a mystery. I mean, he's on the highest wages and his form's dropped ever since he signed the contract extension. It smells like typical Arsenal business to me. Um, but nine goals and one assist is pretty poor goals returned so far. And he hasn't scored since the 6th of March. So he's coming for us without a doubt. I just want to say, I, I can't stand Arsenal Football Club at the moment. And I, I hate, I, I just basically hate this um, 
Lacazette and Aubameyang sort of Instagram fun that they have and uh, uh, with his new haircut and stuff. And I'm just like, you're Arsenal Football Club and you're like 10th or 12th at the moment. Just like, get over, you know, you're a huge club and this is embarrassing. Anyway, um, you've got Emile Smith-Rowe, who is a 20-year-old attacking midfielder who's having a really good season. We were actually linked with him at one point and I'm really annoyed we didn't get him because um, he's got four assists to his name so far this season. And um, that's four more than Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Um, he's averaging 1.5 key passes per game with more than any other Arsenal player. And I would say Saka. Saka's great, but he's got an injury at the moment. Odegaard's got an injury at the moment. He's having an amazing season from Real Madrid. Um, th- these are players to watch out for. But as far, as far as I can see, Saka was forced off in the last game with a thigh injury. And Odegaard's got an ankle injury. And Emil Smith-Rowe has got a hip injury. So they are doubts for Prague later on this week. So we might not see them. I'm not too sure. But make no mistake, Saka and Odegaard are great players. And I mean, Saka is currently on five goals and two assists. So he could play both wings. So he's a big threat. Anyway, I've rambled on for now. But that's that's Arsenal. Well, just so you know, any Arsenal fans that were listening, that was J-Mac that was talking, who said he can't stand you. Not Baldo <laughs> or myself. I don't, well, though, I in, fairness, I, in fairness, I can't stand them either. I'm very much, I'm very much there for the Arsenal downfall. No, let, let me say, let me say, I, I can't stand them at the moment. It's just, it's just this sort, this sort of culture of of players that the mentality that they have that I just, I can't bet. Like, it's just, it's embarrassing, and they should be really just, it shouldn't be posting videos of them celebrating failure. Uh, and basically, that. They are they are failing at the moment as a football club of their size. They're a huge club. I have a huge amount of respect for them, but it's just it, just bunch of fucking losers, mate. Anyway, that being said, Jay Mac, you would kill to have Fulham in their position, surely? Of course I would. Yeah, of course I would. Anyway, yeah, let's well, move well, on. well done, mate. You, you really dug yourself out of that one. Wasn't yeah. <laughs> I just need a bigger ladder, really. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's come back onto us then, Baldo. Let's do a lineup prediction. Come on, well, who, who's going to play? What do you reckon? Um, I'm sort of along the lines of what J Mac hinted at earlier. I think we will go four four two just because we need to. We need to go for it at this stage. So why not? All you know, all guns blazing. No pun intended. So I think it'll be Ariel in goal as per back for Aina Anderson, Congol and Robinson because I did because they didn't really do a bad job against Wolves. In fairness, they kept them kept them at bay for the most of, most of the game. So I think they'll keep that that back four intact. Um, on one wing, I'll say Caviero, even though he's not been great, but in this system, you probably have to play him. Um, Reed and Lamina again didn't actually do a bad job against Wolves, so they keep their place. Uh, Lookman on the left, and then Mitrovic and Maja up front. I shall go for. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I agree with that. Mostly, I think four four two in a high press. Ola Ina, Adebayo, uh, Adarabayo, Anderson, not Adebayo, <laughs> Adarabayo, Anderson, Tete is the back four with Ariola and goal. I would go with Maja and Mitrovic, but I really want to see them. I sound like Don. I really want to see. But I really want to see them play together. I'd like to see Mitrovic actually behind Madja doing the flick-ons to him. Every time we've seen Mitrovic and Madja together, Mitrovic's always been beyond Madja, and I don't think that works. But I'm not, I'm not a coach, so I mean, don't listen to me. But I would go with uh, Lookman, Harrison Reed, and Lamina, and Bobby Reed. Um, and I, yeah, that's that's the midfield. I wouldn't have Luke enough to cheat for this game, ever. All right. Okay. Let's let's just do some score predictions then. 
Um, I'm going to have a look at, I don't want to call them relegation rivals anymore, but let's talk, let's call them the teams that are around us in the table. Um, Newcastle, West Ham, Bordeaux, it's 12.30pm Saturday lunchtime. What do you think is going to happen in that one? I think despite Newcastle's recent uptick in form, I just think West Ham are on too good a run and are too good a team to really cause uh, have any problems caused. So I'm going to say... I'll probably say a 3-1 win for West Ham. All right. Okay. I see it being a draw. I can see that being one all. What do you reckon, J-Mac? For the sake of positivity, which I'm running out of, I'm going to say that West Ham are going to win 3-1 that game. I think um, right. I think West Ham look brilliant at the moment. I watched the match today. I just don't understand what's happening. But they look they look fantastic, and I'm, I'm hoping that they'll, they'll knock uh, Newcastle back down a bit. They're very good at going out into a, a massive lead and then shitting the bed towards the end of the game. Um, they almost <laughs> they, they were three up against Leicester. They got a fourth, which was ruled out, wasn't it, for um, uh, for offside, I think, and then conceded two goals. And Kasper Schmeichel was up for the corner at the end, looking looking for a three all. And they they were three nil up um, the other week as well. Was that against Arsenal, I think? Um, and ended up with a three all draw as well. So. Yeah. Um, Let's hope if they do if they do race out into a three goal lead, then there's uh, there's no dramas at the end of it. All right, and then um, Burnley are only I think a point ahead of uh, Newcastle now. They play away at Manchester United at four pm on Sunday, so straight after our game. Baldo, how do you see that going? A uh, similar sort of vibe. I although I'm, I'm pretty sure I said this when I was predicting West Brom Chelsea. I just can't see anything but a Manchester United win, yeah. but. Let's let's see how that one goes. But yeah, every Man United win. I agree with that. I agree with that. All right, and yeah, I'll, I'll say a Manchester United win as well. I'll say two nil. West Brom don't have a game this weekend. They were meant to play Leicester City, but Leicester have got the FA Cup semi final against Southampton. So Leicester and West Brom is going to take place next Thursday instead. So um, no point in predicting that one because it's not happening this weekend. So all that's left to do is predict our game, Arsenal versus Fulham, Baldo. As I said, I think a lot of it does depend on what sort of team Arsenal will put out based on how their result goes again, their game goes in Prague. But I, I still maintain I don't think we're going to win. I, I think for some reason there is something in me saying that we're going to be able to snatch a draw, as I predicted earlier, but I wouldn't be surprised if... Wouldn't be surprised if we lost. There's a shock. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a one-one just to keep some level of positivity. All right, I'm gonna go one-nil Fulham then. Why not? An own goal. Callum Chambers own goal. One-nil Fulham. What do you reckon, J Mac? Um, my head says no. My heart says two-one to Fulham, and um, my head says three-nil to Arsenal. I, I'm tired of being positive and and the opposite happening. So I'm I'm just going to predict a three 0 defeat for this one and, and hope something. <laughs> <laughs> and hope and hope something. Um, hope I'm surprised. So yeah, I, I think Arsenal going to. I think we're going to open a catalogue of errors again, and um, I think the dressing room's going to go. That's my prediction. <laughs> that's, that's happy days. All right, mate. Um, has anyone got the Samaritans phone number for J Mac? <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this time. We'll be here on the Full and Focus podcast right until the very bitter end, as always. So we'll be back with your next helping of our show first thing on Monday morning, where we will, of course, look back over the Arsenal game. 
As we don't have a game next weekend, your midweek show next week is the chat. Danny and I recently have with Kit Simons to mark 20 years since the Whites were promoted to the Premiership under John Zagana. So make sure you watch out for that. Happier times indeed. It should drop next Thursday. And if you're listening in the future, then it will already be available from exactly the same place that you found this one. Let's hope for some points at Arsenal. Come on, you Whites. Cheers. Fulham.